I'm Archbishop Alan Vigneron of the Archdiocese of Detroit, and this is the Eyes on Jesus podcast. Hello and welcome to the Eyes on Jesus podcast with Archbishop Alan Vigneron. I'm your host, Mike Chamberlain. And I'm your host, Mary Wilkerson. We're excited to release new episodes once a month, so please make sure and subscribe and review wherever it is that you listen to podcasts. Archbishop, welcome and thanks again so much for joining us. How have you been? How's uh, your summer been? Well, great to be back with uh, you, Mike and Mary, and the summer's been all right, but you know, I always I think they get shorter the older I get. Uh, yeah, I hear you. <laughs> I agree. It's such a bummer, I know, because uh, we've had our conversations about the winter, and I know you're not as much of a fan of winter either, so I'm right there with the Archbishop as far as the sadness of summer departure. But I'm not going to move to Florida, so... Right. I'm going to stay here. <laughs> That's Very a different I'll level get over of it. things. Yeah. <laughs> I'll get over it. <laughs> yep. Oh, Archbishop, I know last time we actually spoke, uh, just before the kind of the launch of summer, if you would, at the end of, or I think it was earlier or mid-June, uh, we were just about to move into the Missionary Renewal Assembly, and it's an opportunity for those who are ministering in our parish of families to come together, to pray, to kind of recommit themselves to the missionary identity that we've uh, been talking about with this family of parishes. Uh, how was that event? How did it all go? Well, I was very, I thought it was a great blessing, and I give God praise and thanks for it. It was my hope that uh, the assembly would be in in some way a a mini renewal of the experience of the synod. And I I think, and God fulfilled that prayer as far as Mm. I could see. So I thought two things were important. One, it uh, helped us to renew our focus and whatever practical arrangements we're engaged in, uh, they're not for their own sake. It's not about maintenance. It's about mission for the glory of God, the spread of the gospel. And I thought we achieved some very important practical points of uh, advancing for the priests themselves as members of a team in solidum team. I thought there were a lot of blessings from, hmm. uh, from the three days. Fantastic. Speaking of blessings, in July, you ordained and consecrated the new bishop of Kalamazoo. So I wanted to ask you, what is it like to ordain a new bishop? And if you can like remember, how many bishops have you been a part of their ordination? What's it like? Uh, yeah. It's a great blessing. And I enter into the ceremony with a, a very uh, clear sensibility of myself as in a long chain that goes all the way back to uh, Peter and the other apostles in Jerusalem. Just what they did to Matthias uh, to fill out the college, uh, we continue to live that. And it then reminds me, it makes vivid in my in my heart and mind, that uh, we live as the the, we are the continued lived tradition of the church in Jerusalem. Uh, wow. There's been no break. Uh, we're still part of that group. Uh, uh, you know, it reminds me a little, you, you think about a, a plant where you, uh, you you have a cutting and the, the cutting then is planted and then yeah. a, a cutting from that uh, new planting occurs. Yeah. That's what's going on. And uh, we are the Church of Jerusalem, but mm-hmm. planted here in Southeast Michigan. That, well. Kalamazoo, Southwest yeah. Michigan. <laughs> yeah, 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 yeah. That's what. That's what. Uh, that's what fills my heart. Hmm. How many have I ordained? I've yeah. been the prin- principal consecrator for eleven bishops, which has wow. been a great blessing to me. 
-hmm. and principal co-consecrator of five, mm -hmm. and how many others I've participated in, I, I've lost track, but yeah. you know, at an Episcopal ordination, it's a communal uh, act. Mm -hmm. All of the bishops present ordain the man who's being ordained. Oh, okay. it, it's like concelebration. Sure. We all do it together, and it's a, it's part of the very nature of the, uh, of the College of Bishops that we, we act together. That's hmm. so cool. Um, one of my personal prayer points of the last like three or four months has been this understanding of our generational faith and the passing down of faith and how important it is and how it can get lost. And so I really see that it has to be such a profound moment for you to connect so deeply to the the history of our church and this line of faith through the laying of hands. Like, it has to be incredible. It is. I had two Sundays in August where I was in a, in a, a program with Rabbi Krakow, mm -hmm. uh, who is engaged in the work of uh, those who are dying. Mm -hmm. And uh, right now that's the rabbi's ministry. And he talked about how when he was made a rabbi, he was commissioned by the imposition of hands by his mm -hmm. teachers. Hmm. And I thought, well, that's where we get <laughs> yeah. the gesture from, isn't it? Right. Uh, right. We have it We have it from uh, the synagogue and the temple. Right. It's so neat to uh, really take time to meditate with that reality of God's movement throughout uh, history, you know, and uh, it's just beautiful. So, so good. Um, also, in addition to doing that in July, being part of the consecration, in August, you got to spend some time with seminarians before they begin their academic year at Sacred Heart. You and I just missed each other. I left, I think, about a half hour before you arrived at Manresa to lead uh, their retreat time. You do this every year in August. Um, what encouragement do you like to give the men as they begin their year? Well, uh, Mary, I... Uh, uh, like other bishops, I want to spend some time with my own seminarians, and I've thought about right. what the right way to spend that time is. Some bishops go on pilgrimage, other bishops uh, make it a retreat time. Uh, for me, uh, it's a time to uh, do some reading and study together. Nothing yeah. overly intense. I don't give them homework because that's a little much to offer even in the summer break. But I choose, I choose some readings that I think are significant on a, on a theme that I believe is helpful. And we basically read them together and engage in conversation about what huh. the text means and how it applies to them. And this year, the theme was the new evangelization. So the, we, it had two parts. We read some things about uh, the current situation and uh, the, uh, what Father Ricardo calls the loss of the wallpaper, uh, the, uh, de, the loss of Christendom and awareness of a Christian culture, and then how to respond. And I thought, and so, and, and it does, it helps the students uh, uh, be aware of what I think is important, uh, helps uh, me give them encouragement, find out the, where they are, what they think their challenges are. Uh, it's, uh, it, I think it, I find it beneficial all the way around, and it's very encouraging. Uh, they are very uh, committed to uh, the mission of evangelization. Yeah. And they understand what the challenges are. 
Archbishop, it seems like you've had such a full summer, too. I know I just it heard does, that, actually, <laughs> that last week. I know, really. Last <laughs> week I heard that even um, you celebrated Mass for the Feast of Mother St. Saint, Saint Mother Teresa with the Missionaries of Charity. And something that maybe some of our listeners don't know is that back in 1979, Mother Teresa personally established a community here in Detroit. Uh, can you share with us a little bit more about how that went and, and about that fact that Mother Teresa established a house here uh, for her missionaries in 79? Well, uh, a lot of that was uh, due to the, uh, the good work of uh, the late uh, Father Ed Farrell, who knew Mother very well and worked very hard to uh, get a, a convent of the sisters here in the archdiocese. And a funny thing is uh, people worked very hard to prepare a home for the sisters. And uh, one of the things they did is they had this house carpeted and when mother walked in, she told them they had to take the carpet up because the sisters didn't live in a place with carpet. Hmm. So wow. I think that was wow. very, yeah. <laughs> you know, she set a high standard for yeah. her co-workers. Jeez. Um, the mass went very well. Uh, we, the sisters live in the parish of St. Gabriel in southwest Detroit. Hmm. And uh, the mass was at the parish church. Uh, and uh, a lot of... Uh, parishioners were present as well as uh, people who support the sisters and want to be united with them in their work. So mm. it was a beautiful occasion. That's great. And I was with the sisters uh, last Saturday. We had a, a jubilee celebration at the seminary for uh, people in celebrating milestone years. And one of the sisters is celebrating, I think it was 25 years of profession. Mm. And sister said to me, you need to come to our house, too. So I'm looking forward, uh, looking forward to that. That's great. That's fantastic. Archbishop, out of curiosity, how many, how many um, Sisters of Charity do we have uh, living locally in Detroit? There are you, four missionaries. Four, okay. okay. Wonderful. Which I think is the, the minimum number they keep in a house. Mm. Okay. Mm. Well, I'm really excited to dive into our topic today. It's a topic that is near to my heart, and I think all of uh, all of us as we discuss today, and that is uh, Blessed Solanus Casey. We're going to spend today's episode kind of deep diving into who Blessed Solanus Casey was, uh, is to our um, local church, and beyond. So um, I thought you would start us off, if it's okay, Archbishop, telling us a little bit, just a, a brief kind of biography. Who was Blessed Father Solanus Casey? Well, um, Father was born in 1870 in uh, western, uh, northwestern uh, Wisconsin in a little town called Oak Grove, which I looked up on the interweb, is uh, <laughs> on the border of the state with Minnesota, and it's mm. almost due uh, on a parallel due west of uh, Green Bay. Okay. Mm. And uh, he died here in Detroit in 1957 at St. John Hospital. And I was talking to some uh, leaders of St. John Ascension, and they're looking for a way actually to particularly memorialize Blessed Solanus, having <clears throat> given his uh, soul over to God at the hospital. Wow. His uh, baptism name was Bernard. His family called him Barney. He was the sixth of 16 children. His family were Irish-American farmers. And he had two brothers who became priests as well. And he still has family who remember him very well. Uh, uh, on Father's uh, memorial, I said Mass at uh, uh, St. Bonaventure Monastery, and uh, I met uh, a, 
I don't know how many greats are in it, but a great, great nephew, grandnephew. And uh, he has, he took the name, he was given the name Solanus when he uh, made his profession, uh, as he, uh, in honor of uh, St. Francis Solanus. Hmm. And what I didn't know until I did some prep for this is they both loved the violin. I don't know if uh, St. Francis Solanus was very good at it, but uh, the brothers who lived with Father Solanus uh, testify to the fact that he was uh, very much an amateur. (laughs) (laughs) I love that about Solanus Casey. (laughs) And you know, he used to play the violin to God. He opened the window into the church and uh, serenade God. Yeah. That's awesome. I love um, at the Solanus Casey Center, there's a big picture of the family and seeing all the siblings together and kind of looking at their faces. And again, it's kind of that prayer of the legacy of faith and generational faith and passing down and what we can do with our yeses to God within the domestic life, right? So his two parents with all of these children, three of them being priests, it's a really beautiful witness. Such a good mm-hmm. witness. It, it is indeed. Archbishop, thanks for that little background on, on uh, Father Solanus. I, I wonder, how do you, do you know the, the trajectory of what uh, landed Father Solanus in Detroit specifically, having you know obviously grown up in Wisconsin, uh, kind of in a rural farming uh, family, uh, what brought him to Detroit? The Blessed Virgin Mary. Hmm. <laughs> about, <laughs> uh, about 1890, 1891, he entered the seminary in Wisconsin for the diocesan priesthood, and he had great difficulty with his studies. He was, uh, as you can calculate, uh, he was doing secondary school already at the age of 20, 21 years old. Uh, It was language studies, Latin and Greek, Latin and German that he wasn't very good at. So the seminary said, well, maybe become a religious. Uh, The demands for academic excellence might be not quite so great. Mm. And uh, well, by the way, before he entered the seminary, he had a lot of different jobs. He was a trolleyman, I believe, in uh, St. Paul, Minnesota. He also worked in a prison. Um, you can find a lot of that detail at the Solanus Center. Yeah. But while he was praying about what to do after they told him he, he couldn't continue at uh, St. Francis de Sales in uh, Milwaukee, uh, he had a, a voice from Our Lady, heard her in prayer say, go to Detroit. And he arrived on Christmas Day, as a matter of fact, hmm. and uh, found himself very much at home. Yeah. And in 1904, he was ordained as what is called a simplex priest uh, because of his uh, deficiencies in theological training. Uh, his superiors said, well, you, you can serve as a priest and here as a capuchin, uh, but uh, you don't have enough skills to hear confessions or preach sermons on doctrine. And he accepted that very humbly. As I recall, yeah. there was another priest at the same time who was uh, presented with the same conditions and accepted them. And very soon after he was ordained, he appealed them. Uh, and I understand Father Solanus never, never appealed these. He lived... Yeah. Uh, he lived with these uh, restrictions uh, with great peace. Mm. Mm. So um, 
the next thing I kind of want to talk about is Father Solanus Casey's impact on this area. And it's an interesting thing as somebody that grew up in the Detroit area and my grandparents did as well. I feel like you're never one or two stories away in the Catholic community of somebody that met him or experienced a healing or was connected in some way to Father Solanus Casey. So I'm excited to dive into this. Um, what impact, if you had to say, Archbishop, did Father Solanus Casey have in our area while he was ministering here? Well, there are some uh, uh, systemic impacts that we can talk about. Uh, Mm -hmm. The Capuchin Soup Kitchen, uh, which uh, Father established basically by beginning uh, receiving people at the door of the monastery and giving them food. And now, of course, uh, the, the soup kitchen is much bigger than a soup kitchen. It's so many works of Corporal works of chair, corporal works of mercy. Mm-hmm. Father Solanus is very much identified as the founder of what uh, is uh, so well known here in the archdiocese. Mm-hmm. Then the Seraphic Mass Association, uh, a way that people could uh, be engaged in being remembered in the masses of the Capuchin friars. That's very mm-hmm. important. Mm-hmm. But what I find most uh, uh, impressive is the the vivid presence that Father Solanus has in the lives of people. Mm. Um, and mm-hmm. certainly people with their memories. Uh, yeah. I never met Father. I've met a lot of people who did know him mm-hmm. in, in life. Mm-hmm. But even after Father's death, he's a living presence. How many people do I meet who say, well, uh, there, the doctor said there might be a problem with the baby's birth, so I'm going to go tell Father Solanus about it. Mm-hmm. Or uh, I lost my husband. I need to go and, and talk to Father Solanus. Yeah. And uh, that's just very typical. And then, well, you can talk about before Father's death, the marvels mm-hmm. that he uh, he's recounted to have performed. I met... When I was a young priest, I met a, an, an older man in uh, St. John Hospital, as a matter of fact, and I mm-hmm. said to him, you know, you're very close to the room where Father Solanus died. Mm-hmm. And he said, oh, Father Solanus rescued me from a burning building. This was when Father was <laughs> still alive. He said, I was a firefighter, and I went into a building, and I got knocked unconscious by uh, some falling debris. And Father Solanus came into the... Uh, into the building and rescued me, picked me up and carried me out. And there are a lot of stories like that. I mean, one of the ones that I find most charming, it's a pretty famous story, it's about the ice cream cones. Some man came to the monastery and gave Father two ice cream cones. And you know, you can go to the center and actually see the desk that Father used when he, he took care of the door. I don't know if you can sit at it anymore, but they used to let you sit at the desk. Anyway, Father opened the bottom drawer, put the ice cream cones in the drawer, and closed (laughs) it up. Some hours later, one of the young friars came back from the dentist, Uh and Father said, how was your uh, examination? How'd that go? And he said, oh, it was fine. So Father opened the drawer and said, here, let's share ice cream cones to celebrate. And no, way. Said, no, this is this is all documented. Yeah, uh, 
you know, as we say, I'm not making this up. Right. <laughs> right. And there are, I mean, even, you know, and, and as Father would say to everybody, yeah. you may not get some marvelous response to your prayer, but mm. you will receive a response. Mm. And uh, Father Solanus is a great witness this uh, to the providential love of God the Father for uh, mm. for us in Southeast Michigan especially. I mean, Father Solanus belongs to the whole Catholic Church, yeah. but he's very much ours. Yeah, We're, it does feel that way. Um, my son, who is in sixth grade, when he was in first grade, he had this little friend, and as they became closer and closer, it turns out that she, when she was born, just had so many seizures. They weren't sure if she was going to be okay. They weren't sure if she was going to live or if she was going to have any after effects. And uh, her parents brought her to Father Solanus Casey's tomb and put her little car seat right on top of it and prayed. And from that day on, she had no more issues. And so, and I just, yeah. I know uh, so many stories like that of, of Father Solanus interceding in such a supernaturally profound way. It's, it's awesome to meditate on those. Well, there's a lady's story that the friars told me, uh, this is after Father Solanus's death. Uh, mm -hmm. She came to the monastery to pray. And she was just disconsolate. I don't recall what the, the cause of that was. And uh, a friar came to her and said, you know, what, what's the matter? And she opened her heart and he spoke with her about God and God's love. And uh, so she, she was just profoundly consoled. So she went to the desk and said, I'd like to say thanks to the, the priest who spoke to me. Mm -hmm. And uh, so uh, the doorkeeper went through the list of friars and no, no, that, that doesn't sound like the one. So there was a picture of Father Solanus on the wall and the woman pointed to it and said, well, that's the priest who talked to me. And this was <sighs> years after Father Solanus had died. I, I don't want, the, the marvels are fine, wonderful demonstrations of God's love. Yeah. But, you know, the, the story is that Father would sometimes say to people, after they asked for his intercession. Mm -hmm. Well, you know, we don't always have our prayers answered the way we would like. Right. Mm. And so you right. you go home and and give God I don't know what words he would have used, but sure. you know, and he invited the person to abandon herself himself mm -hmm. to God's will. Mm. Which in itself is is a prayer and a miracle when we grow closer to God through not having our prayers answered in the way that we want, but then maybe getting the grace to see the eventual impact of God making it good. So, yeah, it's mm. good. You know, going back to something you guys both uh, just kind of struck up on that, you know, even though he belongs to the entire Catholic Church, uh, it really he really seems to have something specific for the Arch, um, Archdiocese of Detroit. Um, you know, I know Archbishop in the Unleash the Gospel, you specifically uh, kind of uh, call Father Solanus. Uh, a particular companion and intercessor for us as we embark on the missionary transformation of our local church. Can you expand upon that thought, you know, and, and, and why Father Solanus, you know, specifically? Is it just because of that locality? Um, yeah, do you want to expand upon on that? Not just because. I think uh, he shows us, I mean, he, he's so much at home here. He shows us what we can do and what we can be as uh, ambassadors for the good news. That's what he was. 
And I mean, there, there have been a lot of great evangelists, Francis Xavier, for example, but mm. that's the other part of the world. And homegrown evangelizers uh, tend to remind us that we can do it too. Mm-hmm. And I think it's, that's, that's what my thought is. That, mm. and, and you look at the role, the, the place that Father Solanus has played in the life of our community, it, uh, he testifies to the truth that our community needs the good news, continues to need the good news. Um, the first time I ever heard this expression, uh, thanking God ahead of time, was um, when you were preaching years ago about Father Solanus Casey. And I feel like now our archdiocese has kind of adapted this expression, thanking God ahead of time. I hear it all the time from priests and from different ministers when we when we enter into prayer, thanking God ahead of time for the work that he will do. Can you tell us a little bit more about your personal devotion to Father Solanus Casey and maybe even like that particular um motto, phrase, prayer that you've shared so many times that now has really taken root in our archdiocese to thank God ahead of time for the work that he will do. Well, this is, uh, this is part of the good news is that mm-hmm. there isn't any situation that in which we find ourselves that doesn't offer us some grace, doesn't offer us uh, a greater bond with, uh, with God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit. That's why as we say at Mass, it's, we can give thanks always and everywhere. And so uh, Father Solanus is a reminder of that to me, and he's a reminder that, that that's the good news I, I offer everyone else, mm-hmm. that uh, there isn't anything that we might be facing uh, for which we cannot find a grace for, thank, for which we thank God. Mm. And the other thing that goes with thank God ahead of time is blessed be God and all his designs, mm-hmm. that God, mm-hmm. God's working out his providence. So Father Solanus is, uh, I, I consider him an example, and I also mm-hmm. consider him a companion, mm-hmm. because sometimes I get a little discouraged, and it's right. not always easy to thank God for what's un- unfolding in my life. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And then I kind of hear Father Solanus say, perk up, boy. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, I love that. Archbishop, if, I, if I've done my math right, I, I know you were, you were quite young, actually, when Father Solanus himself died, uh, locally, obviously, here. And um, do you remember hearing about him as a young boy, even, like, when, when he passed away, and, um, like, shortly right after his, his passing? And What I remember uh, from uh, the late 50s is uh, the parish priest at, uh, at Sunday Mass reading a letter from the bishop. Uh, saying that uh, the friars were about to begin uh, the uh, work of his the, advancing his cause for canonization, hmm. and anybody who had any uh, written document from Father, any letter that Father had written, would they please send it to uh, the friars? Uh, he, they promised to send it back but they needed to gather everything that they could find that Father had ever written. And I, re- hmm. I remember that. That's my first memory. Hmm. Wow. Wow. Well, and as we know, uh, Father Solanus is Blessed Solanus Casey, now on the way to canonization. So we wanted to talk a little bit about that just to give everybody a refresher. Um, when and how did Father Solanus's canonization begin? You just kind of referenced that. But where is he now on the uh, road to sainthood? Well, uh, canonization is uh, very much uh, uh, a 
process of examining evidence, and making judgments, and presenting those uh, judgments to the Holy Father for his ratification. So the first judgment, 1982, he was declared a servant of God, which meant that the Holy See said uh, the cause, uh, the case could be advanced. Hmm. 95, he was declared venerable, which was by, by the Holy Father, in, in which the Holy Father said that the Solanus lived a life of heroic virtue. And uh, that's one of the most important things for anybody who's going to be held up as an example uh, for Christian discipleship. In 2017, the Holy Father declared him uh, blessed, which means that the, the miracle attributed to his intercession uh, since uh, his uh, death had been uh, validated by a panel in Rome. Hmm. The Holy Father had seen it and said, okay, uh, my advisors and I think he was a, a, a holy man, uh, God must think that too, if he granted uh, this miracle through uh, Venerable Solanus' intercession. Hmm. And so now we're waiting for a second miracle uh, for God to tell us that we've got it right. Tell hmm. the Pope that uh, you're on the right track. Yeah. And uh, he is. Uh, it's so clear that he's a saint, uh, the Holy Father, that you can uh, hold him up to the whole church as an example and an intercessor. Hmm. That's beautiful. I know that that, um, it's funny you guys talk about kind of the trajectory in history. I'm not born and raised in, in Detroit, as you guys know, but uh, I moved here in 2005 and almost immediately right away, different people that I would in interact with or families or, you know, the Catholic world that I was interacting with was constantly telling me about Father Solanus and telling me about downtown and the place to visit and, you know, all this different stuff. And I'd never heard of him in my whole life. And then uh, it was really cool, just my own kind of devotion and familiarity with him kind of developed. And then to actually be able to be at that uh, beatification mass, which was just astounding. You know, it, I remember when I first moved here, I thought it was just kind of a, oh, this is kind of a niche thing. A few people like him and, <laughs> and then mm -hmm. fast forward a handful of years and going to see seven, 70,000 attendees yeah. at this beatification. It was like, okay, this is, this is a bigger deal. This isn't just a niche of a handful of people that really like this guy, you know? So it was beautiful. It was really cool to see this kind of road of, of sainthood playing out, you know? Mm -hmm. Right. And, uh, you know, 70,000 people in one of the worst rainstorms of the season. Oh my gosh. Archbishop Victor, I have to tell you, we did this pilgrimage with like five families and so many little babies. And we stayed at a hotel down there and made it this prayerful thing. And I will never forget walking in the pouring rain <laughs> after we left and it was pouring so hard. <laughs> oh. Archbishop, what was it like for you that day to, to, to be the Archbishop during that yeah. beatification process and the beatification mass itself? How, how was that whole thing for you? It was uh, so many blessings, not least of which was to give God praise and thanks that I get to be the leader of a, of a Catholic community, mm. uh, uh, a, a priest from which uh, has achieved uh, this level of service, uh, fulfillment of his priestly ministry. And uh, seeing so many, seeing the fruit of Father's life in so many devout people present uh, just gave me great encouragement. I've talked to the nuncio, uh, now Cardinal-designate, uh, uh, 
Christophe Pierre about it, and he said it was one of the most beautiful experiences he's ever had in the arch in the United States. Mm. And I agree. Wow. That's really that's a great compliment. Before the beatification, the body of Father Solanus was exhumed so that relics could be collected. What are the relics, and how were they collected at this time? There's a, a very strict protocol that the Vatican uh, requires to be used. Uh, Prior to the beatification, relics can be extracted from uh, the body of uh, the one to be beatified for the veneration. Um, I don't remember exactly where the, uh, uh, all of the relics were taken, but uh, it was done in a very reverent way, and uh, they were uh, sealed and uh, verified uh, and uh, then sent to uh, the headquarters of the Capuchins in, uh, in Rome uh, for di uh, whatever distribution uh, the superiors of the Capuchins would find appropriate. So I actually have a, uh, friars gave me a very beautiful relic, which I keep in my chapel. And they gave me one for the seminary, which is on a side altar shrine. And we have one uh, that we keep uh, in headquarters in the Curia downtown, which is available for parishes, uh, kind of a traveling shrine. If a parish wants to have, say, a weekend uh, or some particular occasion of uh, honoring Father Solanus, uh, praying for his intercession, uh, having a kind of a time of recollection around Father Solanus and his life, uh, they can ask uh, the leadership, I suppose it's uh, Father Amore is, would be responsible for it, mm -hmm. to have the, the relic come to the parish for a while. Some of the relics came from the hand that Father used to open the door yes, of, the, of, the, uh, uh, of, of the monastery to people. Yeah, I believe the traveling relic is is uh, part of a thumb bone, I believe, That's or something. What I thought too. Yeah. And uh, I know our parish, um, where I where I work, we hosted it a handful of years ago, and it was just a great blessing for the parish. And so many people came out to just kind of participate and pray and worship in a in a particular way. So it was a really great blessing for our parish. So, well, relics uh, have a profound impact on the life of people. I think they it's a way to communicate directly. Uh, it's uh, it's part of the incarnation in some ways to, uh, the relic makes it clear that uh, grace is not a, a mere idea, but grace lives in, as it, as it came into the world in the body, in the flesh of Jesus, it, uh, grace lives in the, the flesh of his mystical body of us members. And so, you know, the thumb, you think of, uh, again, uh, it was this grace of his love of caring for people that uh, filled that thumb that led him to open the door. And it reminds us that God is present in the material dimensions of our life and that that's what holiness is. It's about in, in fleshing the Holy Spirit in our time, in our place. Mm -hmm. God is close. That's, I think, part of what relics say. God is mm -hmm. close. Not an idea. God's not an idea. Right. 
Archbishop, I know that we're actually um, we're at a point now with Father Solanus that um, for his canonization, obviously we need uh, a, one more miracle, as you mentioned earlier, to be attributed to him uh, and through his intercession. Um, are there any potential miracles being identified right now? Like kind of, I don't know, I guess, are you aware of how close we might be to that possibility of uh, confirmation through, you know, um, a miracle, therefore, a.k.a. his canonization itself? Well, anything that is actually under study uh, is supposed to be treated with a great discretion mm. so that the freedom of the panel, and, and that would be both a panel of uh, scientists, doctors, and then a theological panel, because the, uh, the wonder has to be certified as not explicable naturally, and then certified as the kind of thing God would accomplish in the world. God doesn't do bad things. The freedom of the judges has to be preserved, and our Holy Father's freedom has to be preserved. Mm. So I know there's something going on, but what it is, I don't know. But mm. what I do know is that uh, the friars are uh, generally excited and think that it, uh, there's a good chance that it will be coming, canonization will be coming along. So do you think, Archbishop, it'll happen in your lifetime that you'll see the canonization? <laughs> I of, do. I do. You do? Oh, awesome. wonderful. Good. But, yes. you know, blessed be God in all his designs. So sure. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, yeah, it'll yeah. Happen, it'll happen when Father Solanus is properly of service uh, to, yeah. to, to us. Yeah. And, you know, it, it might, God might want to delay it for a uh -huh. time when we really need to have mm -hmm. that kind of uh, renewed enthusiasm. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Uh. Yeah, I'm waiting anxiously. I'm very excited for that moment. And it would be in Rome, right? Right. The, okay. uh, the beatifications uh, in this pontificate mm -hmm. are generally celebrated in uh, the local, the locale where the, uh, the servant mm. of God lived. Uh, but uh, the canonizations almost always take place by the Holy Father in, in Rome. Okay. Now, there was a big exception to that a few years ago when the Holy Father was visiting the United States. He canonized uh, uh, St. Junipero Serra uh, yeah. on the grounds of the National Shrine of the Immaculate Conception in Washington. Mm. Okay. Mm. Th th that's exceptional. Archbishop, just as we kind of close, I wanted to ask if there was anything else you'd like to add to this topic or any specific kind of lessons from the life of Father Solanus that you wanted to share with our listeners? I think the best, one of the, well, two lessons. One is God loves us, and uh, we can live out what Father Thelonis taught us. Well, I got three, I guess. Uh, the second is we need to care for the, uh, all of those who are at the margins. Uh, we need to engage in the works of corporal and spiritual works of mercy. Uh, those who mourn, those who are hungry, uh, we need like Father Solanus, to be agents of God's love. And then uh, the third is to, uh, to be on mission. No matter what talents we have or don't have, uh, even our lack of talent can be put at the service of the gospel. Mm -hmm. And we can bear fruit uh, just as Father did in his yeah. life. Fantastic. 
at this point, we get to move into questions from our podcast audience. And one of the gifts of our recent episodes is that we are asking Catholic school students to submit their questions to ask you during our podcast time. So I wanted to start by asking you Matthew's question. He recently graduated from high school and he asks, are there any church teachings that you find difficult to understand or accept? Hmm. I I accept everything that the church teaches because of my act of faith, but Mm -hmm. understand, uh, well, a mystery that I can never understand, really understand, I believe it, is uh, how it's possible for the second divine person of the Holy Trinity to become a human being without losing his divinity. Nobody can understand that. Mm -hmm. It's a great, it's it's a mystery of faith. But another kind of difficulty understanding, the really comprehending, is uh, how it is that the almighty creator of the entire cosmos cares for me. I mean, that's, it, it's, it's a kind of foundational, it, it's a little bit of a, a background mystery, but it very much challenges my preconception. Hmm. Uh, you know, uh, ordinarily, when you meet someone of great power and importance, uh, you're you don't expect them to uh, be attentive to the little guy. But what's remarkable is that God cares for each of us with so much love, and and not only. Again, again, I go back to words from the Easter Vigil from the Exalted: "To ransom a slave, you gave away your son." How can, who can understand that kind of love? Hmm. Uh, that, that to me is, is astounding. Mm-hmm. To ransom me. He thought I was worth the life of his son. I, I find that, it knocks me over. Yeah. 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 Absolutely. Well, the way you're saying it too, is just, you know, it's like one of those things you hear, but the way you're saying it right now, I'm like, wow, it's just, it is very <laughs> overwhelming. So thank you. Um, Actually, I have a question here actually from two students. It's actually from Emerson, who's in high school, and Aubrey in sixth grade. They asked the same question. Well, like, she sounds precocious if she's yeah. up to high school questions. <laughs> I know. <laughs> Good job, Aubrey. Oh, that's really funny. Yeah. Um, well, here's the, here's the question that they both ask is, uh, does the church teach that the story of Adam and Eve is literal or more of a parable? And what fruit did they eat off of the tree? It's, it's a poem. Mm-hmm. It's a profoundly uh, significant poem, uh, and it requires uh, both scholarship to understand its meaning, and it is true. It's not a le- it's not a myth, but it it is a poetic presentation of history. Um, I think that's the best way to. It, so I don't think it's a parable. I think mm-hmm. it's a poem about a, about history, but. It's not, it's not the way we might write history, but it's very, very significant. One of the most beautiful articulations of the meaning of the poem is uh, Pope John Paul II's catechesis on uh, theology of the body. He mm. gives a great exposition. What fruit did they eat? Uh, there is nothing in the scripture to indicate that. Um, there are some essays that explain how it got, how it gets presented as an apple in art, uh, 
Hmm. Uh, it has to do with the kind of the, the, I don't know if it's the Hebrew word or the Greek word uh, that, com that creates a sense that it might have been an apple. They tell me that in the Chaldean church, they say it was a fig because hmm. figs were nearby. And we know that uh, Adam and Eve made their clothes out of fig leaves. Hmm. I don't think it was a pineapple, though. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, wouldn't that be a surprise when we enter eternity if we found out that it was? <laughs> okay, our final question comes from Cooper, and he's from one of our high schools. If you could live anywhere in the world, where would you live? I'd be happy to stay where I am right now. I'd, I, I would live here because it's home. Hmm. Uh, that's uh, kind of a simplistic approach, but that's, I think, uh, I tell Cooper that's the best answer I could give. Hmm. Uh, maybe when I was younger, I might have thought uh, some glamorous place, but uh, not anymore. Nothing like home. Nothing <laughs> like home. Amen. Orange Bishop, I wanted to ask if there was any specific, as we kind of close the, the episode, I wanted to ask if there was any specific prayer intentions you had that we, as our as your listeners, and Mary and I could both kind of be holding in our prayer for you this coming month. Well, later this month, uh, I'm with uh, all the priests of the Archdiocese at our semi-annual convocation. Hmm. Uh, we think people can, you can pray that there be good fruit from that. And when that is concluded, I will uh, be with the deacons for their convocation. So for both the priests and the deacons, I think is important. And while we've ended the year of prayer for priestly vocations, I'd like people to continue to pray ardently for uh, an increase of vocations to the priesthood in the archdiocese. Absolutely. Amen. Yeah. Orange Bishop, thanks again so much for sharing everything today, specifically on uh, Father Solanus, and I know it was great for me, but uh, would you mind closing us with a, with a prayer and a blessing? Lord God, we give you praise and thanks ahead of time for all of your many good gifts. We thank you for the knowledge and life and example of Father Solanus, he, his being one of us, part of our local church, for the gift he has been and continues to be for us. We ask that we will today and every day be renewed in our service of the gospel. And may Almighty God bless all of you, the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. Amen. Amen. Stay tuned for the next episode of Eyes on Jesus, a new episode every month. And if you enjoyed listening, you might also enjoy Beyond Sundays, a podcast from the Archdiocese of Detroit. Find it on your favorite podcast app.